to 25. So please give your undivided attention to the reading of his holy word. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is God's word. Please take your seats at this time. So many of us know that a birth announcement is uh, quite an, an exciting time, and there's such creative ways in which people will announce to the public and also to their friends that either they're pregnant or that the baby was born. You do it through email, you do it through text, maybe through social media. I was kind of curious, so I looked at how celebrities in our culture announce the birth of their, of their child, and in fact, there is nothing too extravagant or new about that. There is somebody that you may know by the name of Mindy Kaling, she probably had the most I guess, exciting birth announcement. So she made a virtual appearance during COVID on uh, the late show with Stephen Colbert and just announced that she was pregnant. And they laughed and they celebrated that. Ed Sheeran, if you look on the top 30 birth announcements of celebrities, just had a picture of a knitted blanket and socks. Kylie Jenner just had her baby sleeping with a close-up of her baby holding her little finger. And you could go down and down. And essentially, even for famous and wealthy people, their birth announcements are all very similar. You can get a sense of why that is, can't you? That is supposed to be a picture of new hope, new life, an innocence or purity, a delicate love between a parent and a child. And all that's really good, and that's fine, but what you read about in Matthew 1 is another birth announcement that's not like that. It's, in fact, entirely unique. This birth announcement of Jesus, the one that we just read, is in fact wrapped up in controversy, wrapped up in confusion. And this announcement of the birth of Jesus wasn't made through social media, but came through an angel. And it wasn't announced to 18 million people like Kylie Jenner's Instagram was, but this announcement was made to one man. His name was Joseph. He was married to Mary, but wasn't the father of the baby. So automatically you see that this birth announcement is unique one of a kind in the history of mankind. And it tells us that it's utterly unique to Christianity. It's different from the birth mythologies of the Greek gods. It's different from what even some non-Christian and atheists say is similar to Hindu's avatar. This birth had a different mission and a different purpose. Verse 21 tells us the name of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, was for a specific person to tell us his mission, that she will bear a son and he should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why this birth announcement and the birth itself is entirely unique to Christianity, different from every other birth and every other religion. And I want us to look here on this Christmas Sunday to consider this unique announcement and birth of Jesus and what does it mean for the world today? If it's so special and so different, 
And what does it have to do with your life in the everyday and for this world? And I think there are at least three unique realities about this birth of Jesus. One, Jesus was born into brokenness. Secondly, Jesus was born with humility. And then thirdly, Jesus was born with a unique name. Because we all know how important it is to do a name for a baby. So what are we going to consider? Jesus was born into brokenness, he was born into humility, and he was born with an utterly unique name, a name that identifies his mission. So let's look at this together. Jesus was born into brokenness. Now this passage, if you read this by the author Matthew, it's a very detailed passage. And one of the reasons that the gospel writers like to record certain details was really to convey that this account is historical. This virgin birth, this supernatural birth of Mary giving birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world, is in fact historical, is verifiable. If you read this back in the New Testament times, there's a way that you could verify the the idea and the stories and the accounts of this. So it's detailed in its account, which means that it actually happened. So for example, it records Joseph's motives and his thinking in verse 19. He was a good man. He was thinking about how to divorce her but not put her to shame. He was thinking about these things. He pondered them. In verse 20. In the verse 24, Matthew records just subtle details about the timeline. It says, when Jesus woke up. So they don't waste ink back there when they try to record these accounts. And the details just tell us this simple fact that it probably was historical. At least give it some, cre- some credit to say maybe these people really believed that this is something that actually happened. It was real, it was genuine, it was something that happened in history and in time. And when you read verse 18, we see that this historical account conveys the unique reality of Jesus' birth in this way. Verse 18 says, The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew really wants to note that this historical account in birth wasn't just any birth, but it was a virgin birth. The child was from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 19, it says, her husband Joseph being a just man. So it's contrasting this baby and Mary was from the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't from Joseph. Joseph was just a man. He was a good man, a just man, but he was just a man. Now, the reason this is so important, friends, is to know this. Back in those days, when you were betrothed, you're basically in a set-up marriage. It was still legally binding which means that even though they weren't officially in the wedding ceremony, when you're betrothed to someone, it was legally binding. So when Joseph comes and finds that the woman that he's going to marry already has a baby, he's already thinking that she committed adultery, and then he's thinking, it's going to be public, but i got to figure out a way to divorce her quietly. And the reason he wants to do it quietly is because he's a compassionate God. I mean, he's a compassionate man. He wants to do it quietly because if you didn't know this, A woman's status back in the New Testament age was completely bound up in what her husband has done. Her status, her financial security, in fact, if they went really Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, if she was found to be guilty of adultery, they would stone her to death. So everything about her life was tied up into this one controversy of potentially being viewed as an adulteress. She could have been stoned, she would lose her status, she would lose all financial security in a way to actually provide for her family. And that's why in verse 19 it says, her husband Joseph, being a just man, he's a good man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly from the get-go. 
This is the point, friends. If you ever thought about it, the greatest birth announcement, the greatest birth of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, Christmas itself begins with an almost divorce. Comes into this world in confusion and heartache. Now, it doesn't say in the verse, but I would imagine that Joseph probably felt a little bit broken in his heart. This is the world Jesus came into. A world of broken relationships, a world of broken hearts, a world of confusion, a world of corruption, a world of uncertainty. And it implies this, that the incarnation of God in Jesus coming down in a baby implies and tells us that God cares about the details of your life. He cares about the relationships of your life. He empathizes and relates to the hurts and the heartache of your life. Jesus didn't come for the perfect. He came for the broken. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but he came for the sinner. In other words, friends, he came for people like you, and he came for people like me. If you didn't realize this, all you have to do is look up a couple of articles, but Christmas is a time to celebrate. It's a time that brings warm feelings. It's a time that perhaps you do the Christmas tree and you open up presents, and it's a wonderful time. But Christmas also is a time for people who are hurting and broken, and it makes it harder on them. Depression spikes during the holiday season. Loneliness feels a little bit sharper. Christmas highlights friends and family and great relationships, but if you don't have any of that, then Christmas can highlight the absence and a longing of being loved and having someone to love and family that's coherent and together and united. This birth of Jesus tells us that Jesus was born and came for that brokenness, came for our families here today where we may not have had a great family background or our family today is hurting and is broken. In ourselves, we feel dissatisfied in life. And there's a lot of disappointment that you look back in this past year and say, I wish life was a little bit different. But the birth of Jesus says when he's born into almost divorce and confusion, he came for that hurt. He came for that heartache. He came for that brokenness to say in the midst of this messiness, I'm going to be born into this so I could help you through it, that I could help you live through it and give you the grace to carry through. And it should give us a level of comfort. This pastor in Australia by the name of Craig Hamilton talks about the comfort of the, the incarnation, and he says this, Jesus, he knows what it's like to be us. He knows it from the inside. Jesus didn't just dip his toe into our world, the world marked by corruption and rebellion. He entered all the way through it, all the way in. God sent his son into a world of rebellion and corruption, a world enslaved under the power of sin, and the son willingly became a part of it without ever and in no way succumbing to rebellion or sin himself. This is what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. So practically, what does it mean, the birth of Jesus for you in the brokenness of the world that we live in? It means this. If you've ever been tempted, if you've ever had money issues, if you've ever been ripped off, if you've ever been lonely, you've ever been afraid, ever been made fun of at school, if you've ever had a family that doesn't support you, or family that thinks you don't support them. If you ever had friends that aren't there for you when you needed them. If you ever had friends talk about you behind your back, had lies and rumors spread about you. If you ever been lonely. If you ever had someone close pass away and now you're in mourning. If you ever needed courage or compassion, Jesus came for all of that. 
He came to live with you in the messiness of this world as a broken. He came to live where we do. He came here where everything breaks. He came into the world where nothing lasts. He came where there's both beauty but also brokenness. He came where precious things are really treasured but precious things are lost. Jesus can empathize. He understands. He knows what it's like. He came from heaven in perfection, but he took on human flesh in his humility so that he could relate to you in all that brokenness to the point where he died for you on the cross for that, for that heartache, for that hurt, for that disappointment. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4.15. The author says there, referring about Jesus' work as high priest, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands everything that you've gone through. Your mental health issues, your heartache, your disappointments, dreams that you had but were disappointed, dreams that you actually accomplished but now it didn't satisfy. He understands everything that you have done because coming into this world as a baby, taking out human flesh, it was a way that he can relate to people that he loved. Jesus is born into brokenness. But secondly... Jesus was also born into humility, with humility. It was surprising to see this Savior come as a helpless baby. Did you ever think about that? All the grand hopes that people have, Jesus comes in as a helpless baby. It was unexpected that he come in humility and not military power and economic might. It's the only religion in which the Savior of our religion comes in such ordinary mundane, and everyday circumstances as the helpless baby. Now, the reason it's important is because our religion, this Christian religion, that our Savior is born into a manger as a baby, speaks against other worldviews of that time, but also for maybe our preconceptions of today. Because, you know, it's a, it's a difference, a Greco-Roman culture in which Matthew may be speaking to, also filled with Jewish people. But the Greeks, in their Greek mythology, had an understanding about the birth of their gods that was all wrapped up in the notions of power. In Greek mythology, having power and control over others was the greatest achievement of any character and person that they could achieve. In order to gain this dominance and power, all their gods and goddesses had to use fraudulent and deceptive tactics. They learned from earlier generations and they tweaked these fraudulent tactics to gain future success, success and power. This path was an example of how all the Greek gods, including Zeus, who's a third-generation god, came to power. It was all built in with corruption. The parents would throw away their babies. Babies would deceive and usurp their parents. It was all a struggle for power. And that's sort of what characterizes the, Greek, the Greco-Roman world in this sort of hierarchical perspective that everything's about clout, status, and power. So when they see the, the God of Christianity, the Savior, come in as a baby, it speaks against everything and every notion that the Greco-Roman world may have had about status, clout, and power. Because you know why? Jesus and Christianity turns things upside down on their heads. But it wasn't just the Greco-Roman world. Even for the Jewish people, they're waiting. They remember the prophets of the Old Testament and saying, our Savior is going to come. Do you know what the Jewish mindset was? According to all the commentators, the first century Jewish hope was certainly that political power and the restoration of the kingdom of David was going to be the fulfillment of the messianic mission of Jesus. Jesus would come back in power and might. He would restore Israel as a nation of glory and the power of the kingdom. There is political power and economic might. All of that was going to be restored when the Savior comes, and finally they thought that Jesus would be the man, but he came as a humble baby. And friends, some of you today, even you and I, 
in a Western individualistic world, we're all about moving up and having proximity to power, having proximity to influencers. That's what social media to some level does for us. That's what we want in our careers. And that's not wrong in of itself. But if that's your worldview, if you're just moving to get more power and more clout and more influence to have more people around you, in some ways you have a 21st century postmodern individualistic expression of what the Greeks want in their understanding of the gods and goddesses of their mythology, as well as the Jewish hopes of political economic restoration, but it's just coming out in a 21st century individualistic postmodern contemporary way. That you have this conception of power that you think could build your life on. But you know what? When Jesus comes in as a baby, the concepts of power Jesus takes and turns them inside out. Jesus does come in power, but he comes in a sacrificing power, an other-centered power, a forgiving power. Jesus comes in a power clothed in humility. Because sometimes in our culture, don't we say things like, come fashionably late? They always say things like, make your grand entrance for the guest of honor. But how did Jesus come into this world? Now, everything else, when you have a big moment in your life, graduation, your wedding party, anything that you made, you have an award ceremony, there's got to be a grand entrance. You know, the greatest person that ever lived in this world, Jesus Christ, you know what his grand entrance was? He came in a helpless baby in humility. Because that's what Christianity works. He's flipping the dynamics of the world upside down on his head. That's why a professor, an Old Testament or a church historian, a scholar, Carl Truman, has alluded to this in an article I read about the, the Christmas incarnation. He says infants, babies, are in fact the embodiment of self-love. Babies want their immediate needs satisfied. Ask any parent who just had a new baby where we're going to baptize for you today. Babies don't care for nothing or anything or anybody else. And this may be the most apparent when at 3 a.m. in the morning your child is screaming and no toy or no food or no person can stop him. And that is why the irony of the Christian Christmas is that the Christ child comes not because of any need of his own or any desire to fulfill a selfish or inwardly directed desire, this Christ child, the child in the manger, considers it not robbery to be equal with God, and yet humbles himself by taking the form of a servant in order to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's what the Christ child in the incarnation and the birth of Jesus tells us. And this ought to characterize our relationships too, with one another. This other-centeredness, this humility, this desire to celebrate somebody else's success and somebody else's good blessing. This Christ child that comes in humility tells us that we have to think about others more than we think about ourselves and not to be so self-concentrated in the way that we approach our lives. Because the essence and the opposite of humility is really just a self-concentration. It's not just pride. It is pride, but it's really about a self-concentration. And sometimes when you're so self-concentrated, it can come out in critical pride, but when you're so self-concentrated, you're just thinking about yourself, it comes out in a neediness that always comes out in a way that everyone has to cater to what you desire. Either expression, critical pride, or this sort of needy, selfish centeredness is an expression that's opposite of what the Christ child coming in as a baby tells us about humility. 
How do you know when somebody actually really understands the incarnation of Jesus and let the gospel hits and the penny drops and they really get it? Other centeredness and humility. You know how somebody actually gets it? They start talking about themselves and thinking about themselves a little bit less. I went to an MTW missions conference a handful of years ago, and I went to one of their breakout sessions by this artist, and she was trying to teach us about really the gospel and art. And she said this one phrase that stuck with me since about maybe 2016 or so. She says, hurt people hurt. Hurt people hurt. And that's true. But on the flip side, it's also positive. If you get the concept of humility in the gospel of Jesus, then you realize Forgiven people, forgive. Loved people, love. People who get grace are gracious. People who understand humility are humble with their relationships because they stop thinking about themselves and are not so self-concentrated about what they did get and what they didn't get, but they're other-centered and they're thinking about others. Hurt people hurt, and forgiven people forgive. Loved people love. That's why I once heard by another pastor friend of mine, people don't fall out of love with Jesus, they fall out of forgiveness. And that's why the incarnation of Jesus tells us that the paradigm for the Christian life is going to be one that enters through humility. Now, you don't really rank these before we go to our our last point. You don't really see in the Bible a ranking of gospel virtue And so this is just a matter of my opinion in ministry. But the number one gospel virtue that I prize and cherish the most is going to be humility. The easiest person to work with in leadership, on committees, officers, is always going to be gospel humility. Yeah, so we like people who are savvy, people who are strategic and kingly. You obviously want people who are loving. Now, that's just a given. People are gracious. But when you really hone it down to one gospel of virtue, and just my humble opinion about this is that humility is the number one characteristic that I look towards. Because even Ephesians 4 says humility brings unity. Humility moves the mission forward. Humility allows someone not to just consider a personal agenda for the church or for whatever they're serving, but really to think of the grander vision. Gospel humility encapsulated, demonstrated, and given to us in the incarnation of Jesus. Thomas Goodwin beautifully puts it in this way about the incarnation. In the incarnation, heaven and earth met and kissed one another namely God and man. Heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. And this leads us to our last point. What does the incarnation and the birth announcement of Jesus tell us? Well, just look at his name. Isn't it funny that like names are really sensitive, sensitive issues when it comes to our, our newborn? You, know, you, you don't tell anybody. There's a, a name reveal sometimes. There's a gender reveal. And I know that some people get... Uh, and I, honestly, I'm not thinking about specific people in this church. This maybe, maybe not. I just heard people get really sensitive if you name your baby uh, the same name as somebody else has in the church, and then it gets a little bit weird. I don't really get it, but there's only so many names out there. And you look at the top names, and even that goes through cultural changes. So the average sort of common names back in the day, such as John and uh, Jane and 
know, Alice and Susan, these wonderful, beautiful names. You know, in some ways it kind of changed, and you have these sort of different names that people name. And I read that it's changing again, and so now it's going back to the way generations or decades ago people are naming their kids. But it's a really big, it's a really big issue, isn't it? Your name that's going to be stuck with you for the rest of your life, it identifies you. It's going to be something you think about down the road in terms of, well, will this name help them make friends? Will this name be good in a job interview? Will this name be something that our parents could say because it's got to be easily pronounced? Do we think about this? Is there meaning for this? I want my child to know about what it means to be about justice or about grace and about God. And so you name your child in ways that convey this meaning. Well, that's all of life. Actually, in fact, the audience and Matthew himself, the New Testament people, They care more about names than you and I do. That's why the birth of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 begins with the genealogy of names because it has that level of significance. But you know, the name of Jesus is the same thing. He has multiple names that reveal who Jesus is and why he came into this world. His name is identified with his heart. His name is identified with his mission. So just as names are important today, it's also important back then. So even in this culture of the New Testament, the father had the right to name the child, and that had to be something done by the dad because when the dad names the son, it officially declares the legal rights and ownership and the official status of the son that comes from the father. It's literally passing down in heritage the status and the privileges from dad to child. So it was responsibility of the legal father to name the son to ensure that my son has all dad's privileges, status, and his rights. And so when you go back to the beginning of chapter 1 in Matthew, that's why you'll notice that in the genealogy, there's this repetition of a phrase, the father of. You know, it wants to bring it back to the genealogy, the rights and status. So it goes down the genealogy of Jesus, and it says, the father of. So that's why, let me just read this really quickly, a part of it at least. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Over and over again, when you read the genealogy of Jesus' family tree, it's always, he was the father of him, he was the father of him. And that pattern was broken and changed when you come to verse 16 and talking about the father of Jesus. And it goes there like this in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And it makes every effort to say that formula of the father of and the father of is going to be broken when it comes to birth of Jesus because now something is climatically changed that the father of Jesus is not going to be the humanness of Joseph, but to convey that the true father of Jesus Christ is God. And if the father names a son with all the rights and privileges, that means God as a creator would salvate the creator and the savior of this world, the sustainer of this world, names his son Jesus. Jesus carries that privilege and that status and that purpose. Jesus was named through Joseph by his true father, God. So given the fact that God through Joseph named Jesus is telling, Jesus was has the status of a reigning king, the son of God, the only begotten one, the rights and privileges of God. That's why you read the Gospels, and he takes all the identity markers of God, and he applies it to himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light. He takes all these and says, I have the status and the privileges of my God, and I'm his son, and so now I come into this world as a reigning king. 
and he has two names here. In verse 21, at the end of the passage that I've just read in 35, it says Jesus is his first name. Do you know what Jesus stands for? That name means salvation. And it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua means the Lord is my salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So it's saying Jesus comes from the Old Testament. God is going to be the one that saves me. But when you take this word Yeshua and now you apply it to Jesus, you're saying, how is God going to save me in the Old Testament? Now it's revealed in the New and saying God is going to save you through his son Jesus, which means salvation itself. And then in verse 23, through the prophet, he has a second name. He says, there's going to be a son born to this woman, and his name is going to be Emmanuel. And then in parenthesis, in my translation, it translates Emmanuel because it wants people to know, whoever's reading this, to know what the name means, God is with us. So this Jesus who is born is going to be the Savior of the world from Yeshua. And this Jesus that was born is going to be the Savior who's among us and with us. That's why in chapter 1, Jesus as Emmanuel comes down to be with his people. That's why at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus in resurrected form says to his disciples, I will be with you always. It's always enraptured, encapsulated, and saturated with the presence of God in Jesus Christ. He comes to be with us in chapter 1. And he says, I'm going to be with you in chapter 28. That is who Jesus is for you. The name of God, your Savior, your reigning King, the one who was born in humility to dwell with us as Emmanuel, God with us. And then in resurrection, perfection, and power, Matthew 28, he says, all authority and power in heaven has been given to me. I'm going to be with you always by my Holy Spirit. And he's always with us as God, Emmanuel. So friends, I pray that you would take this to heart. I pray that you look at what the incarnation means for you. I pray through all your brokenness and hurt in your relationships that you have confidence in this Jesus who was declared the Son of God. Salvation for you, God with us, and Emmanuel. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your Son. He was born as a, a helpless baby in humility, born into the brokenness of this world, but given the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the author of our salvation, the one who is Emmanuel, come to us by his spirit and dwelt among his people. We pray that would give us a level of comfort and hope, a level of, secure, of security, help us to base our lives and live out of this truth. We ask all this for each and every one of us and for this church. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Well, friends, I guess it's very appropriate.